us bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you so much once again for this tremendous privilege, this honor of gathering together as family, Father, and a unity that you've provided by faith, faith that is given to us as well by grace, which is motivated, of course, by your unerring love. Father, thank you for proving that love to us time and again, even though we lose our faith and we doubt and we question. Your faithfulness is renewed every morning, so says Holy Scripture. Father, we pray for those that can't be with us this morning due to health issues or otherwise. We just pray for their recovery, that they are able to fellowship with us face-to-face once again. Your will be done, of course. We pray also, Father, for those that are still lost in this world, that they be humbled and to repentant faith. We might have additional brothers and sisters in Christ, Father, for all of eternity. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt and to make a morning like this even a reality. We do just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, the deceitfulness of sin, uh, it's been a fantastic journey. We are on our way out of the so-called mine shaft. I mean, 49 parts is is a long journey. Not surprised at all, given the um, import of this series. I've sort of placed it in my own soul right next to the gospel reload, frankly, in terms of importance, uh, in terms of a lot of things. And so um, it's been a, a long road on this series, The Deceitfulness of Sin, This is how we began on Thursday. Scotty and I had flipped uh, duties uh, on Tuesday and Thursday. So Scott taught on Thursday. This is how we began. I loved it because it's just a level set. It was just an immediate level set. And it just got the entire message sort of organized. Um, And this is all he said really was we pervert everything. And that's a perfect place to start a lesson on the deceitfulness of sin. Because some of you probably just had a knee-jerk reaction. No, I don't. No, I'm, I'm pretty pure. No, we pervert everything. That's all the flesh can do. And so this is not an overstatement. This may sound uh, a little bit overstated, but... It's not an overstatement. It's true. We pervert everything. And I'm not just talking about, you know, the, the immediate conjuring up of sexual sins. That's obviously in there, but that's not what is in view here. I'm talking about taking something good and bending it or, or morphing it so that it's more palatable for us and our sensibilities, our human sensibilities, not God's. Disregard God's, our sensibilities. We pervert everything. So it's not an overstatement. And to put proper perspective on this, we don't just pervert the obvious, let's call them seedy things. Like I say, that word pervert, uh, excuse me, perversion or or pervert, uh, usually uh, (laughs) conjures up, you know, scenes of some guy in a trench coat but that's not, that's hardly the end of it. Hardly the end of it. So we don't just pervert the obvious seedy things. We pervert the good things of God. For example, God says, here's some food and drink. Eat and be merry. Our response is, I'm going to overeat and become intoxicated with drink. Perversion. Check. End result, all kinds of health issues. 
things that preclude us from the Great Commission itself. God says, I'm going to make procreation something enjoyable between husband and wife. Our response is, I'm going to have sex with whoever I want. Check. The end result? STDs and damaged souls. God says, go out and help your neighbors. Love your enemies. Pray in secret, and I will reward you. Our response is, I'm going to go do some good in this world. And then I'm going to go buy a trumpet and announce all my good works in order to glorify myself in my body. Check. End result? Religion, dysfunction, and our favorite, misery. Do you see the pattern? God's grace, man's perversion, God is not mocked. God's grace, man's perversion, God is not mocked. I was thinking about that as a side note. You know, I think if you're on a long trip, if you're in a sort of a, a light mood, um, you could probably turn this into a fun little game with friends. Friends that are willing to be honest with each other. You know, call it perversion, check. Like, you know what I'm saying? Hey, we do, God gives us all these things, right? How do we pervert it? Oh, this dog definitely done that. And you can at least, it's not funny, but you can at least, um, in humor, put things honestly on the table. And that's a good place. That's a very good place to be. God gives, we pervert. On that note, one of the great perversions over the course of human history has been the separation of body and spirit for the sake of fleshly indulgence. We do this thing as if, you know, well, I'm spiritual on Sundays and on Saturday nights, eh, my body's my own. But I'm spiritual, and so I separate the things I consider spiritual with the bodily perversions. And we do this little game, and it's how we can categorize out our own sinning and our own lifestyles. For example, I often sense that people say to themselves, well, I'm doing good spiritually, so God gives me a free pass physically. I'm doing good spiritually, so God gives me a free pass physically. Or even more perverse, people say only eternal things matter. So who cares what I do with my physical body? It's decaying away anyways. Well, based on Holy Scripture, that is an awful stance towards physical fitness. It's an awful stance. It's just an excuse. It's a lever, a device that people use so that they can justify abusing their body. And you know what's funny? If you read the Bible, that's certainly not a stance that Paul or any of the other writers in the Bible ever took. Paul didn't write that way. He did write and in, in point out, you know, spirit, soul, body. He did point them out in that order, by the way, but he did point them out as different aspects. But when he wrote about himself, he wrote as a person who thought of himself 
as all of that, always, as one, one unified unit, if you would. Like, this is who I am. Do I have struggles because of the sinfulness in my body? Yes, I do. But that's still me. I, all of me, I still don't do the things I want to do. Hmm. So that stance, that separation of, you know, material and immaterial aspects of humanity, that's not something that Paul took or any other writer in the Bible. When Paul wrote about, quote, himself, all of him was included. Spirit, soul, and body. I love the translation Scott gave us on Thursday up here on the board. Romans 12.1 in the Amplified. This is something that Paul wrote, of course. I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, and beg of you, in view of all the mercies of God, to make a decisive dedication of your bodies, a decisive dedication of your bodies, presenting all your members and faculties. That's all of you, in other words. Not just the spiritual side, but also the physical side. Not just the immaterial, but the material. All of you. I want all of you. So, to make a decisive dedication of your bodies, presenting all your members and faculties as a living sacrifice, holy, devoted, and consecrated, and well-pleasing to God, which is your reasonable, rational, intelligent service and spiritual worship. The message reads this way, up here on the board, Romans 12.1. So here's what I want you to do, God helping you, take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, in other words, you, you know, you, your life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for Him. The conclusion on the topic of fitness and readiness for service, because that's what it was, fitness and readiness for service. At the end of the day, that's why we are here, to worship and serve the Lord, not ourselves. We might go through all these, you know, machinations, if you would, all these attempts at separating material from immaterial and justifying this and that in our lives and sort of hiding out and categorizing and doing all these, playing all these things and doing mental gymnastics to try to get away with Friday and Saturday nights separate from Sunday mornings. We do all these things uh, that actually make us unfit and unready for service. So up here on the board, there's something we got this past week. Christ exalted in our bodies. When we subject or submit this body to God's purposes and not our own, we can be a light on a hill to a lost and dying world, a physical example of Christ's love, even in persecution. In other words, if you just show up day to day or day after day and it's difficult, something you're going through is difficult and the rest of the world knows it and there you stand as a physical presence. I'm here. I'm ready for battle. I don't know about you, but I'm encouraged by that. I'm encouraged by seeing all your faces this morning because you showed up. You showed up. And I have no idea what's going on in that soul of yours. It's not my business. All I can see is that you're here, that you showed up. And that has a testimony that is, as the Word of God says, encouraging to others around you, that you just showed up. Now, granted, people have told me, you know what, I'm not going to lie, I showed up. But I was about 10%. <laughs> Had a rough night last night, or I'd just been distracted, or whatever. So, I'll take the 10%. Not my favorite percentage, I'm just going to say. 
I shoot for over 50. But if you show up with 10%, I'm happy. Because you know what? You're here. And 10% is better than no percent. Amen? There you go. So don't be, hey, you guys, amen. Amen. Low watermark. I'm digging this class. <laughs> see, you guys pervert everything. You see what I'm saying? That's exactly what I'm saying. They're like, yeah, booyah, 10%. How about we just invert that? Let's shoot for 90. Whoa, whoa. The point, when we subject or submit this body to God's purposes and not our own, we can be a light on a hill to a lost and dying world, a physical example of Christ's love, even in persecution. Summary, show up. Just show up. But if you're too physically beat up, you know how that doesn't happen? I'd be willing to bet there's someone that's not here this morning that's too physically worn out. And you might say, oh, well, that's because... And they come up with a litany of excuses. Oh, because blah, blah, blah. You know what? If I told you there was going to be a million dollars taped under your chair, I'd be willing to bet you'd be here. Hell or high water. Sniffling sneezing, whatever it is that, you know, kept you <laughs> Right? Million bucks! People be coming in on wheelchairs. Gurneys. Come on, get over there! <laughs> is that fair? That's, why is that true? You're laughing, but why is that true? Why is that even a relevant truth? Why does it take a million dollars? Where does that say your heart is at? Right? Oh, but I could do so good, so much good for the world. Your motives are no good. You want to you spend it on your own pleasures is what it comes down to. Most of you. Some of you that are legitimately offended, I'm sorry. Probably just spoke to no one. 2 Corinthians 4.10 Always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifest or manifested in our body. As the Spirit's been teaching us, this is about perspective. It's not about body shaming or, you know, you just are physically unfit or, you know, you, you abuse your body. I see you out in the smoking area out there. I, you know, I saw you at the bar last night. This is not about any of that. This is between you and the Lord. This is about perspective on purpose. Why are you here? It may be painful and an arduous road to hear the truth, but that's a very good thing. The truth is always good. Without the truth, we are all subject to the deceitfulness of sin. Even with it, we are. But without it, we are wholly exposed to the deceitfulness of sin. In other words, it's easy to trip us up. So what the Spirit's been saying is that every aspect of our walks in Christ is subject to scrutiny. There's no place that the light of the Word shouldn't shine. There's no place we should, you know, put up our hand and say, ah, oh, you know, I'm going to shade that out. There's not, that, we should never do that thing. So that's what he's saying. Every aspect of our walks in Christ is subject to scrutiny. For the light of Christ shines in every corner of our lives. This means that every aspect of us, our person, every aspect, material, immaterial, is meant to be enslaved to our Master's will. It means that every aspect of our person is to share in the purpose of Christ. Every aspect of it. When you say me, you say all of me. It's me. I'm, I have this body. I have this spirit. I have a soul. I want to dedicate all of me to the Lord. I want to share in His purpose, in other words. Go to 1 Thessalonians 5.23. 
1 Thessalonians 5.23. So that's the perspective the Spirit's been getting at. Let's put away all the gymnastics, all the silliness, all the justifications, and let's share in the purpose of Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5.23. And then we get clarity. And when we have clarity, things get a lot easier. 1 Thessalonians 5.23. Now, 1 Thessalonians 5.23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. Entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body, in other words, the corners of you, all corners of you, all facets of you, all aspects. Let's not, let's get specific here so that you don't sort of, you know, find some loophole in what I'm trying to say. I'm saying all of you, may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul wrote about the whole person, not just the immaterial part of him. Because that's how Paul thought. thought Paul didn't think, oh, well, you know, we're just going to um, consecrate the spiritual side of us, but we can go ahead and run out and live like hell and abuse our bodies and, and render it essentially useless in the Great Commission, you know, because that's the material side. We can, we can do that. We can make that separation. Did Paul ever teach that? No, not at all. Nothing like that. You're talking about the guy who was on foot going out on very long missionary journeys, on foot, being beat up, being cast overboard, being stoned, being all kinds of things. Probably limped, scarred, you name it. Facial, bodily. He's just saying, all of me, I, that's how I functioned. So Paul wrote about the whole person, not just the immaterial part of him. And notice the order in which Paul lists the three elements of a human spirit and soul and body. We might glean. I'm not a big fan of that kind of thing because it doesn't always hold up. But uh, there's some truth to that. There's some priority there you could sort of glean that he put spirit first and soul and then body last. Uh, McDonald wrote a little bit about that up here on the board. In the original creation, the spirit was of first importance the body last. Sin reversed the order. Man lives for body and neglects the spirit. I mean, look around. Look at America. What is everything about? It's about indulgence of the body. People talk about spirituality as a, uh, a passing fad, um, uh, something that you might lean on uh, only in times of need, uh, it's, 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 like a, it's like a device you get to pull out. You know, you hold it in your shirt pocket and, you know, you get to pull it out when, when needed, like a trump card. I'm going to call upon the spiritual aspects of things when I need it. But I'm not going to consecrate my entire life. My life's not going to be defined by that thing. You, you see? So McDonald had it right. Said the original creation of spirit was of first importance. The body last. Sin reversed the order. Man lives for body and neglects the spirit. So he says, when we pray for one another, we should follow the biblical order, putting spiritual welfare before physical needs. And this is a wonderful perspective um, that I cannot personally lie about. Um, I'm going to give you a little insight. Some of you maybe are going to be like, hey, what the heck, man? The vast majority of the time someone asks me to pray for something physical for them, I go behind their back and I pray for their spiritual welfare. Hmm. Why? Because I believe that God uses all sorts of physical conditions, good or bad, to guide us. Um, just think for a moment. If there were no physical ramifications of perverted physical habits, food, sex, drugs, you name it, whatever, choose your poison. 
Imagine if there were no physical ramifications of perverted physical habits. I'd argue most of us would end up 1,000 pounds, STD-ridden, addicted waste products with very little to offer in terms of spreading the gospel. Why? No ramifications. Sounds like to me God knows what he's doing. Sounds like to me we have to have physical pain and suffering for the decisions we make against our own bodies. Sounds like there's a certain purpose in view. That we're, we're not as noble as we like to think we are. Oh, I love Jesus. I'll do whatever it takes. Really, stop eating so much. Stop having sex with God knows who. Stop going to the liquor store or down the street to the corner to pick up your fix. Stop doing those things. I'm so noble, I'll just do it on my own. No, you won't. Some of you have to hear from a doctor. Hey, your, cholest your cholesterol is 3,000. You're going to die in five minutes. <laughs> what? I'm going to die? My poor body. What do you care about? Your physical inability to serve or your poor body? Your inability to eat some more. What? I have AIDS? What is going on? I'm going to die from drug overdose? What's going on? Yeah, you can't abuse that body. God really does have a purpose for you in this life, and it requires that little vehicle called your body to be fit for service. So I'm going to go out on a limb and say that if there were no physical ramifications, we'd all be a mess. Is that fair enough? Yeah, right. And with the proper perspective, you understand that if you debilitate yourself in such a way that you can't serve the Lord, then you've missed the mark. And by definition, missing the mark equals sin. The one who knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it, to him is accounted what? A sin. The only other argument you might have is, I don't think it's, you know what? I don't think it's wrong to do X, Y, and Z. You're really going to go before the throne and say, you know what, God? I don't think it's wrong to do all this stuff that I'm doing. Because I go to church and I'm, I'm like a spiritual giant. You see me, I'm there. I read the blogs. I do this and that. That's your only other argument. Either you're for God or you're against Him, right? Either you know it's the right thing to do, the better thing to do, or you know it's not the better thing to do. Because people like those gray areas too, right? Huh? Well, it's not that bad. Stop it. Not that bad is still ends with the word what? <laughs> bad is not good. You get it? So stop doing the little, you know, the little adjectives before the end result. Fair enough. Up here on the board. Perspective on sanctification, because that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to, you know what sanctification, I've taught this a thousand times. Sanctification really just means that God's setting us apart for his purposes. That's what sanctification means. We're being set apart for his purpose. So, perspective on that. We, every part of us, have a purpose. Spirit, soul, body. Allah, 1 Corinthians 9, 26, 27. Go there, go there. 1 Corinthians 9, 26 to 27. That's the perspective he's trying to give us. He's saying, stop trying to, you know, stop copping out. Stop trying to make excuses. Um, you know, like, well, it's, it's the spiritual stuff that really matters. Well, yeah, it matters more, but that's also the umbrella to other forms of fitness. That's our guiding light, if you would. But at the end of the day, we can't dismiss the fact that we have a 
body as well. 1 Corinthians 9.26 Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim, I box in such a way as not beating the air. You know a perfect example of that would be? Okay, um, two boxers in a ring get one drunk off, drunk as a skunk. What are you going to see that one doing? Exactly what Paul's saying. And if Satan's the other boxer, you're going to get, you're going to get dropped within like three seconds because you're flailing around like a moron with no purpose because you're intoxicated and you're going to get dropped. Paul says, therefore I run in such a way as not without aim, I box in such a way as not beating the air, in other words, without purpose, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. So the question on the table then has been, what is your purpose in this life? Are you boxing in the air? Are you, you know, are you boxing or beating the air, as Paul would say? Are you running without a, an end goal? You're just like sort of loping around the parking lot over here of life? What's your purpose in this life? Is it set by God or your flesh? Here's a good question for you, and think about this morning specifically. Think about this morning. Like literally, say, all right, imagine yourself, you just woke up this morning. Some of you are like, oh, can I not go back there? Just imagine you just woke up. What, may, what motivates you to get up in the morning? I mean, I got Art Morton back there with basically one good foot. And he's here. I have a good idea of what motivated him. I'm not comparing, I'm just saying. That's what I'm getting at. What motivates you to get up in the morning? Because when Art puts his foot down, it hurts. What motivates you to get up in the morning? Physical or spiritual joy? Chocolate chip pancakes and coffee? Or worshiping God? Seriously, what gets you up in the morning? What, what motivates you? Because here's what we've been learning up here on the board. Motivation is everything. So says Holy Scripture. You can go through all the motions in this world. But it's about motivation. 1 Samuel 16, 7 talks about bad motives and choosing leaders. James 4, 3. Uh, Hebrews 4, 12, part C. I'll give you the whole of Hebrews 4, 12 up here on the board. Remember, motivation is everything. And that's what the Word of God is meant to do. Crack that walnut open and say, let's get by the shell of who you are the shell of who you present to the world, the one that everybody thinks you are, let's get beyond that and let's get to the root. Who are you? What are your motivations? Because that's the true test of a person in their so-called metal. That's why a lot of times, I just was talking to Sean about that this past week, you don't know people until times get tough. So that, that, that shell gets worn down to a nub and it breaks, and then all that's left is the real person. And in many cases, it's a jackass. You realize that a lot of people could care less about you. I don't, I don't mean to be a downer, but then you, on rare occasions you find out, hey, this person really is genuine. This person stepped up. When times got tough, this one person elevated their game when all my so-called friends faded away. Boy, it's easy to be someone's friend when times are good, isn't it? It's when times get bad. That's the same idea. The Word of God says, hey, let me put a little pressure on you. I'm going to use that bald guy that you, can't, you don't like very much to press on you. And you're going to be stuck in that seat, and you're going to be like, oh, here go, another one of those messages. I don't want to be here right now. 
and, the, and the, the, it's cracking, the shell is cracking, and then ultimately, and he says, okay, now here we are. And I'm going to shine light right on you. Boop. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. In other words, it can cut through anything. So you better, why bother even fighting it? And piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and here we go, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's the beauty of the Word of God. I love it. I love it so much I can't even stand it. I hate sin so much I can't stand it. I love the Word of God so much I'm, I'm like, I don't know. I feel like an elastic band most days. If I turn to my left, I look at sin and I almost feel like throwing up. If I turn to my right and I look at the Word of God and I'm so elated and I jump around like a weirdo. Why? Because the Word of God is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. If you're humble, that's all you ever really want to know. What? Really, why am I doing that thing? Why am I thinking this way? Why is my lifestyle this way? And is this work ever done? Do I ever arrive and then I can just put myself on cruise control until the rapture or I die? Never. If that's your attitude, you're missing the mark yet again. It's not about cruise control. You don't establish yourself like you do at a job, in a church, or in the spiritual life. It's this. It's always this. Always up and to the right. Always sanctifying. More and more. That's the beauty of the Word of God because it reveals our motivation. And without good motivation, it's all wood, hay, and straw. It gets burned in the end. It's no good. Even you coming to church, if your motivation is terrible, it's no good. That's what I love about the Word of God. The reason why you feel convicted by messages like this one is nothing more than the Word of Truth shining light into your life. It's one of the greatest blessings of all, and it's so simple. If you're on the board, <clears throat> and the truth shall make you free. Listen, the truth is unmistakable. It's unavoidable. It's immutable. It never changes. Unmistakable, unavoidable, immutable. It is also immovable, implying we must be changed. We must be changed. The truth existed long before humanity even existed. Certainly any one of us. And it's not about to move. There's a lot of, there's a lot of churches this day, right now, sadly, that are lying to congregation members that God will move towards them. And, and they call it grace. That is not grace. Grace is the ability of you to be set free towards Him. That's what grace looks like. The fact that He's willing to sanctify you towards Him doesn't mean He doesn't reach across the chasm by grace. But He's not changing the way a lot of people propose or even suppose He does. The truth is immovable. It predates mankind. So, it is also immovable, implying we must be changed or sanctified to accommodate it, not vice versa. The sinful flesh despises this reality. The sinful flesh says, okay, I won't ask for everything, I just want 5%. I want God to show me He really loves me, and He's going to move towards me 5%. I want Him to change. You know, that's like that, those ridiculous games we play with our spouses and our loved ones. Right? If you love me, oh, shut up. I am who I am. Stop trying to change me. I'll let God change me. How about that? And we'll coexist. That's not something Tammy and I do, so stop it. Like, wow, what's going on in that marriage? Right? <laughs> People are like, oh, wow. Guess, guess I know who I'm praying for today. <laughs> like, at least it ain't my own marriage this time. <laughs> oh, oh. Everybody's like, oh. What's the matter? The sinful flesh despises this reality. 
says, I just want God to move towards me a little bit. No. Who the hell are you? Do you know, do you know the, the audacity in that statement? Just put that into perspective. The holy God of the universe, the perfect one, there's nothing, there's nothing ever been ever wrong with him. And you want him to budge towards you? You want him to give you a free pass, right? Like you suspected, you know, Friday or Saturday night. That type of, he wanted, you want him to give you that free pass, right? Because he, quote, loves you. And because he loves you, you get to abuse his grace. Read Romans 5 and 6 when you go home. Is that what we're supposed to do? Read Matthew 4 when you go home. Are we supposed to put God to the test? Is that that's the essence of his love? We just get to just test him and test him and test him and test him. See, he loves me. Test him and test him and test him and test him. I love his mercy. We don't get to put mercy on trial. We don't crack a whip over mercy. Be merciful to me. I demand it. You have nothing in this game. God is holy and righteous. You suck. Happy Sunday morning. You don't have a skin in this game. Your only skin is that by grace, he'll sanctify you to him. That's why we call ultimate sanctification. Ultimately, we're with him forever and ever. He didn't move one iota. You know, the sin hates it, hates that. Hates me for teaching it, which is why in your, some of you right now, there's a little thing like getting kind of gnarly in there. Yeah, it's because your sin hates the truth. Your sin hates the truth about such things. It's the craziest thing because it's the truth that sets you free. And your sin is holding on to bondage. It's the craziest thing. But again, it's all about Tashuka. It's all about control, right, DJ? It's about all about control. So, on the running topic of the deceitfulness of sin, all this has been about our living in a reality that is perverse, accepting norms and standards that are actually evil. So, this came out on Thursday. What's normal? That's a fair question. What's normal? Step back and challenge your norms. That's a wonderful point of advice. Step back and challenge your norms. Just because you've been doing something for 30 years, does that mean it's right? Nope. Just because something, quote-unquote, feels right, does that make it right? Nope. It's the Word of God. That's Hebrews 4.12. The Word of God goes all the way to your motivations. Why am I doing this thing? Oh. Oh. At face value, it didn't seem problematic. But when I went down into my motivations, when the Word of God convicted me, when light shined, you know, the walnut cracked open, light went poop, I said, uh-oh, I've been doing this thing for all the wrong reasons, for years. I've been serving my flesh for years. And until you have the humility to step back and ask that question, what is normal in my life? What norms and standards do I cling to that maybe, just maybe, the Word of God disagrees with? Step back and challenge your norms up here on the board. The things that you cling to as foundational to your life are often the things that make you miserable. <gasps> yep. That's hard news to take. <clears throat> the things you cling to as foundational to your life are often the things that make you miserable. Some of you, relationships. Somebody has to love me. No, they don't. God loves you. Is that not enough? Oh, somebody needs to love me because I got, you know, issues, parent issues. I, didn't, I wasn't loved enough when I was a kid. Jesus loves you more than your parent could ever love you. What's your norm? That's, that's your norm? Somebody needs to love you? So you're going to find love in all the wrong places? Gentlemen, ladies, how many have been down that road? I have. So some of you need to like actually step back and go, is that the right motivation? Is that the right thing in my life? Do I really need to have this thing in my life 
Is that from God even? Or is it actually from the kingdom of darkness? Has it been a ring through my nose for decades? This misconception about truth. Hmm. The things that you cling to as foundational to your life are often the things that make you miserable. Consider the so-called, quote, highlights of your day. They are often fleshly indulgences. Why isn't attending church, reading your Bible, etc., your priority instead? Think about that. Most of you are like, I was asked you, you know, outside of the context of this morning's message, because most of you would probably be like, oh, it's coming to church, it's worshiping God. You didn't know me, and I asked you on the side of the road, hey, what was your highlight of your day? A lot of you would be like, you know, I got a cafe, macchi, latatino, frappuccino, and it was the best one I ever had. Oh, my God, Jesus loves me. Or I finally got that new car. Or I finally met my man, the man of my dreams. Now, granted, he doesn't love Jesus yet. God, I'm going to sleep with him and change his mind. Oh, that doesn't work? Ah, that's weird because I think it, some people say it does by their actions. Right? Well, what's the highlight of your day, honestly? Before today's class, if you were to ask yourself, what was the highlight of my day yesterday? Oh, I got to sleep in all day. Now, some of you have earned that right, I'm not saying, but you know what I'm saying. I get to be lazy and drink too much booze. I get to, I don't know, you, you, you know what I'm saying. I'm not trying to offend anybody, I'm just saying, think that way. What's the highlight of your day? Is it fleshly? And then do you pervert it and say it's from God? You know, because he loves you. He loves you so much, he's going to be a bad dad. Like, you know, like an earthly bad parent who spoils their children. He's just going to, he's going to enable you to be more dysfunctional than you already are by encouraging you to be dysfunctional today. Because, you know, he loves you. That's called dysfunctional love. So you have to back out of that, that frame of thinking. Is God going to do that? Or is he going to say, hey, while are you sleeping on the couch? He goes, right? Wake up! Sloth, <laughs> wake up. You're supposed to be out there for me, and you're in here for you again. <laughs> so what's the highlight of your day? Are they often fleshly indulgences? That's a fair question. And why isn't attending church, for example, reading your Bible, etc., your priority instead? This is why we've now spent 49 parts on the deceitfulness of sin. On the deceitfulness of sin. Because it's not sin at face value. It's not always the overt stuff that trips us up time and again. It's not the overt stuff that, that makes us truly dysfunctional. It's those things that we see when the walnut's cracked open, when the light of the Word shines down and says, this is who you truly are. You need my help. So this is why we're on part 49 of the deceitfulness of sin. It's because every one of us here this morning, as well as every Christian that has ever walked the face of the earth, has been deceived. Our only hope is sanctification. It's that simple. And the key to sanctification is simple. It's called humility. Go to James 4, 7. James 4, verse 7. This is all the Spirit's been trying to get across to us. 49 parts. We have got to be among the slowest creatures, right? 49 parts. And some of you just had an aha moment today. Scott said he had... Now, Scott's a pretty learned guy, right? He said he had an aha moment when he, before you taught on Thursday, right? Man, you're slow, right? Join the club, man. High five. <laughs> yeah, amen. <laughs> we got to be slow. 49 parts? Come on. Hey, at least be humble about it. At least say, yep, I'm slow. I'm a slow learner. James 4, 7, submit, therefore, to God. 
Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. So, for humility to shine, listen, for humility to shine on the side of love and fellowship with God, we must be first or first be humbled by the truth about ourselves. Again, for humility to shine on the side of love and fellowship with God, we must first be humbled by the truth about ourselves. In other words, to be in the presence of God, to be humbled by it, to know that you're loved by Him. You know what has to come before that? You have to be humbled. You have to be brought really low. That's what James is writing. Be miserable then. Good, you double-minded punk. Keep playing this game. Keep ignoring what's coming from the pulpit. Keep ignoring all the, the signs. Keep ignoring your own misery. Keep ignoring the truth that's meant to set you free. Go ahead then. Be miserable and mourn. Keep on. Go ahead. Keep torturing your own body. Watch what happens. You're going to be literally a proverb. I guarantee it because I'm not mocked. Go ahead. Keep doing it. Big joke this past week. I got a cold sore. You know? I shouldn't have been kissing that girl in high school. True statement. Now I got to live with this for the rest of my life. It's ridiculous. Eh? Nobody? It's a perfect example. I shouldn't have kissed the girl. I shouldn't have, right? So now what I live with? I live with some weird form of an STD on my face. Herpes. Shouldn't have been doing it. God's not mocked, right? God is not mocked. So you know what? Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Hmm. We need a change of perspective in order to be sanctified. James is essentially saying, let all the so-called good times you've been having in the flesh be destroyed by the word of truth. Yeah. Let all those so-called good times, you know, the ones, you know, the highlights of your day, let them be destroyed by the word of truth. Let that joy be reversed, turned right around on itself. Stop rejoicing over ungodliness and then saying, God blessed me out. So again, let all those so-called good times be destroyed by the word of truth, by the true knowledge about your sinful existence, your personal sinning, and your awful lifestyle choices. Let the very presence of sin in your life become the bane of your existence. Hate it. Hate it. I actually think that's one of the hallmarks of maturity in the faith is literally when you're repulsed by sin. Not like, ah, oh, I'm not supposed to be doing this because the Word says I shouldn't be doing it. That's adolescent, immature type thinking. It's a step, it's a stage in sanctification. But ultimately, you get to the point where you say, I hate the fact that sin is even in this world. Todd and I were talking about that before class. I hate that it even exists. I hate that it's in me. I hate it. Who's going to deliver me from this body of death? It stinks. It's a rotting corpse. I hate it. I hate the sin. That's how you know you've really been sanctified. Some of you are saying, I don't really hate it that much. Well, that's fine. You're at phase whatever. Some earlier phase. But ultimately, I promise you, you're going to get to this point where you're going to hate sin. Every aspect, the fact that it has any power over you or influence over you, the fact that it's the thing that's got you laying on the, the couch like a sloth or drinking too much or having too much sex or, or whatever it is you're doing, 
choosing everything except God, you hate it. You hate that that happens. So that's what he's saying. He's like, let the very presence of sin in your life become the bane of your existence. Doesn't mean you're condemned by it. Romans 8.1, which is a positional reality. But you can't have a certain hatred of it. Let the very presence of sin in your life become the bane of your existence. As the Bible teaches, godly sorrow leads to something imperative to sanctification, namely repentance. That's 2 Corinthians 7.11. We'll get there in a moment. Godly sorrow leads to something imperative to sanctification. We call it repentance. That's a very good thing. The Bible gives us the simple solution to it all, something we've noted with King David and his son Solomon up here on the board. Oh, I don't have it up here. Oh, James, you're in James 4.10, right? Yeah, James 4.10. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and He will exalt you. That's the secret. That's what we read in the, in the wisdom, the so-called wisdom books. Humble yourselves. Peter wrote about it. James wrote about it. Paul wrote about it. Christ wrote about or spoke about it. James 4.10, Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and He will exalt you. There's your key. Stop exalting yourself. Stop exalting your body. Stop exalting your body and then calling it a blessing. Stop doing all this ridiculous stuff. Stop justifying ungodliness. Stop doing all this stuff that keeps you in a state of misery. Let the light shine in your life. Stay humble. When you see something, step back and go, well, I thought that was foundational. I thought that was a norm or standard, but obviously I was wrong because my motivations were wrong. That's what it means to humble yourselves in the presence of Lord of the Lord, and then He will exalt you. So the next time you're feeling, you know, sorry for yourself, proclaiming some heavy cross that you're carrying, check whether or not it's your flesh that is doing all the crying out, all the whining, understanding that it's likely your own flesh that persists in a state of misery by choice. God is not the author of misery, do you understand? He will ordain it to correct you. He will discipline you. That's discipline. Because I get stuck with that baby my whole life, like some of you do. But that's discipline. That's what it looks like. Be grateful for it. Learn the lesson. But know this, that it's by choice. It's by choice that such things exist in your life. It's by choice that some of you are completely misery, and it's by the deceitfulness of sin that you haven't noticed it yet. You haven't seen it yet. And so this process has to happen in your life. You have to scrape away all the cobwebs of norms and standards. Go deeper than that. Are my norms and standards good here? Is my motivation appropriate? Is my purpose set? Is my direction, are my affections set to the Lord? Or are they still on my flesh? And have I been deceived by sin in calling certain indulgences, blessings, from God? That's exactly what the world wants you to think. Jesus loves you. Do this, get that doesn't matter about your motivation. Just do this thing and get this thing. doesn't matter, you know, if you even step on God's toes in the process. So just know that it's by choice that our own flesh persists in a state of misery. For years, some of you have known the truth. Listen, please, this is for your own edification, your own freedom. For years now, some of you have known the truth, and yet you still refuse it at face value. It's incredible, right? It's incredible. Know the truth, and you still say no. 
That's the same thing Paul was talking about when he wrote. Go to 2 Corinthians 7.10. I promise you, we go there. Can't believe it. I'm getting close on time. Some of you are suffering because you overindulged in coffee and your flesh. Maybe I should just, like, you know, drag it on a little bit. You know. <laughs> Start talking this slow. 2 Corinthians 7.10. What about sorrow? Where does it lead us? That's what he's talking about here. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, deliverance. But the sorrow of the world produces death. What does that mean up here on the board? As a refresher, we've seen this in the past. This refers, the sorrow of the world refers to the sentiments and judgments the world clings to regarding a convicting conscience. The sorrow here is diametrically different than godly sorrow because it is induced by bad data. For example, sinful doctrines and the flesh are being offended. That's the only reason a godly person has any sorrow. It's because their flesh is unsatisfied. That's it. Because their flesh is somehow offended. The flesh is sorry. You know, it's the bratty, you know, the, brat, the two bratty kids. Tell your sister you're sorry for hitting them. I'm sorry. That's disingenuous. You get nothing out of that. If you're genuine, if, if your sorrow is genuine, if your repentance is genuine, if you ask somebody for forgiveness genuinely, there's a sense of relief. There's a goodness to it. Hmm. That's... Different. It's the exact opposite than the sorrow of the world. Verse 11. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow, has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. You see? Godly sorrow, this, the root of it, hates sin. is sorrow, sorry about the fact that sin has overtaken them. Truth always breaks the chains of bondage up here on the board. Truth is like a sledgehammer on the back of sin. It is crushing. Now, in my closing moment here, I'm almost out of time. I just want to get real for a moment. And this is something that I've said, but I think it's well-positioned at this point. Let's take a step back, a, a deep breath. Point on the board is truth is like a sledgehammer on the back of sin. It is crushing. It's the, it's the only thing that can win in you. You will not conquer sin. This we have learned, right? You on your own will not conquer sin. There has to be outside influence God has to be involved. Here's what experience has proven. Truth can do that thing for you. But you know what? People simply don't want the truth. Oh, what? People simply don't want the truth. Why? Because people are flat out deceived. That's why. They're deceived. And when someone is deceived, the truth unsettles them, filling them with a certain fear the Bible teaches us about. Up here on the board, John 3.20 in the Amplified, For every wrongdoer hates the light and does not come to the light, but shrinks from it for fear that his sinful, worthless activities will be exposed and condemned. People don't want the truth. By choice, they remain in their sinful living. Even Christians do this thing. Even so-called believers play this game. They don't check their norms and standards. They don't take a message like this as a blessing. This is a blessing, not your frappuccino. 
I mean, the Frappuccino is if you've got proper motivation. Da, 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 you know what I'm saying? This is a blessing. People that don't want truth will avoid it. We'll sidestep it. We'll be faced with it like some of you have this morning and go, no, thank you. Think about it this way, and I'll close. To run away from the light is to run into the arms of sin. To run into the arms of sin is to run into death. To run into death is to suffer the pains of separation from God. Could there be a more miserable existence? Could there be a more miserable existence? I'm going to let you answer that. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the privilege of studying your word. Thank you for truth that sets us free, Father. Thank you for being so patient and kind with us, for sanctifying us, even though we drag our feet. Father, thank you for loving us and proving your love to us through grace and mercy. We just ask for your blessings as we take the things we've learned. Out to a world, Father, back to our own homes that just needs it so desperately. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen.